The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Good morning, church. Uh, it's great to have you all here. Uh, welcome to those who are in the room here. Welcome to those who are watching at home. It is a wonderful thing to praise our God together. And this morning, uh, it's a special day today. Today is Palm Sunday. This is the day when we remember when Jesus triumphantly rode into Jerusalem. Uh, and he, this was about a week prior to the, to the cross and the grave. And he rode into Jerusalem, welcomed like a king. And only a few days later, he was crucified like a criminal. But we know, we know that Jesus Christ is the king. And he's not only the king, he is the king of kings. And the kingdom that he rules is not a political kingdom, it's a spiritual kingdom. And everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ, everyone who has experienced forgiveness through Christ and the cross is part of that kingdom, declaring together that Jesus Christ is our king. And so now with Palm Sunday, amen. Amen to that. That is always true. Hosanna. As Christians, our desire is to worship God with all our lives and to help others do the same. And uh, one of the privileges we have of Christians is to share the good news of Jesus Christ wherever we go and with whoever we can. And uh, we are privileged as a church to be partners with many wonderful missionaries and organizations. And in a few moments, you're going to meet Janet and Azur Lalden, who are the champions of Far Corners Ministry. And they're going to tell you a little bit about why they're champions there. And every month, I look so forward to you meeting our champions of various people who are the witnesses for Christ around the world. Hello, my name is Azra Lalden, and this is my wife. Hi everyone, I'm Janet Lalden, and we would like to talk to you today about outreach on a global scale. For me personally, I work here in Winnipeg at a uh, local Christian school, and for years my students and I have been studying through the book of Acts, which talks about the early church and the expansion of the early church. And so we have really focused on Acts 1-8 and uh, the idea of equipping people locally and then sending people out into the nations. And we can see that model through Paul and his three missionary journeys. And I always get very excited to point out that not only were Paul and his companions equipped in the local church and sent out, but then they also came back. And they came back and they shared with their local church what God was doing on that global scale. That's exciting because it creates a wave of raising people up and training people, sending them out, and then having them to return and uh, encourage, get encouraged to encourage and be encouraged, as well as gain support for their ministry. And so today we would like to talk to you about a ministry that our church partners with, It serves northern India, and it's called Far Corners Ministry. This ministry began um, by, was created by uh, Reverend Shant Manuel and his wife Ginny Manuel, and they live in Halifax, Nova Scotia. They started the ministry in 2007, and our church has been partnering with them for quite a while, since 2010. We partner in a number of ways. Of course, there's prayer support and financial support, as well as Uh, sending teams together that uh, partner along with their ministry and have actually traveled to India. So I was on one of those uh, mission teams that uh, that our church sent to uh, to India with Far Corners and actually in my case what happened was I was supposed to go on the March 2012 team which was entirely uh, provided by volunteers from our church and because of uh, visa restrictions and visa delays I wasn't able to go with the team in March, so I ended up going in November. And of course, in hindsight, that was providential because a number of the team members uh, weren't allowed to enter India and they were the ones who understood the language, understood the customs. So I ended up being the only one on the team that uh, that was able to do that. So God's hands uh, hands been evident in all of that. And it was a tremendous opportunity for me to, uh, to participate in that. Uh, Far Corners, um, has, as, in, as Janet said, has missions in Northern India, and their mission is threefold. Uh, So first of all, they minister to the local pastors. And what that means is that they provide pastoral education to local pastors so they can receive teaching, 
so that they are enabled and equipped to minister to their own congregations. Uh, they also, Far Corners also provides funding to support education of these pastors' uh, children. And that's a huge opportunity because uh, the education that they receive through Far Corners, uh, through the funding from Far Corners, uh, enables them to get better education than what's available in the public school system. And lately, Far Corners has been looking at options for providing uh, the pastors with the ability to create their own income through agricultural projects, such as uh, growing produce in a farm and selling it in the marketplace or by raising livestock uh, to add some income to their, uh, to their households. Their second focus is uh, construction projects. And so, if, as you can imagine, these pastors are developed and then within their villages, they begin with uh, smaller congregations and they might meet in homes or in, in more temporary dwellings or temporary places. And then as the congregation grows, so does their need for more permanent and uh, safe buildings. And so Bar Corners comes along and provides the construction of new, safe, um, sturdy structures that can become churches and buildings for local uh, communities for, for meeting and worshiping the Lord. And then the third area of ministry is more um, humanitarian care. And so that might look like training in different vocational skills so that people can learn how to uh, work and provide a living for themselves and their families. Um, but currently it might mean more like local pastors that Azar was talking about going out into the communities and helping the very poor. So providing things like blankets or mosquito netting or just basic food supplies. Far Corners has been able to actually uh, help over a thousand families right now during COVID with their basic food supplies. And so that of course is an ongoing need as work is scarce. The need for, for basic food and supplies is, is more prevalent right now. And uh, so it's very encouraging to see that even through COVID and our concerns and pandemic right now in our world, that ministry continues. And as great as the needs are, um, pastors are able to go out and provide. And so through provision of basic needs, the people in the villages are also able to see that God loves them and that they are cared for in a way that um, isn't the same through other religious outlets in their area. And so the, the Christians are able to share the love of God and have that come through. So that's very encouraging right now. So over the last 10 years, uh, it's definitely been a privilege for our church to be a part and a partner with Far Corners Ministry. Uh, we've been able to send a number of teams all the way from 2010 uh, up to the last one that we sent a couple of years ago. Um, so we've been partnered with them in that way. And, and probably one of the most exciting things has been supporting education of up to 13 children uh, of these pastors. And, and one of the most exciting news we heard recently was that one of these children that we've uh, supported from the beginning, she just graduated from high school. She's now going into college. So what a joyful uh, milestone for us to be a partner with and to, to celebrate that with this family and with this uh, young lady. Uh, so as a, as a ministry partner, we value Far Corners very, very much. We value Shant and Jenny and their heart for uh, serving uh, other nations greatly. And, and we are privileged uh, to be a support church for them, to be a partner with them, and their call to grow the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Amen. Thanks, you guys. It is so fitting that on this Palm Sunday that we spend some time thinking about global missions, just like Azra just said, uh, this is a kingdom that we, is growing to the ends of the earth, and we have the joy and the privilege of being part of this kingdom and being, by the grace of God, being able to be part of how he grows his kingdom. So praise God for what he's doing in bringing people to know the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, and now we are going to praise the name of Jesus Christ. Let's praise our king together. I invite you to stand. Good morning, church. My name is Mercedes, my husband, Matt, and we have two boys, Isaac and Miguel. We're the novice family. Dad and Isaac will read Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 25. It was not through law 
that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith, for if those who live by law or heir, faith is no value and the promise is worthless, because law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all, as it is written in Genesis, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but for us also, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. All, All praise, praise and praise glory, glory be to God. God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. I, I did not know that Matt and Mercedes and their family was going to be reading that scripture this morning, so I kind of choked up there because uh, if you go back about a year and a half, that family was not walking with Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And, uh, and, uh, and some of you who are part of the Wednesday Come to the Quiet prayer time, started seeing this little little zoom picture of this guy <laughs> whose name was Matt and uh and then one day he surprised us all and he walked in and he was way bigger than we thought he was hallelujah oh it's so good to see them and uh praise God I hope you'll make use of the uh, devotionals that Kevin was referring to there's a, a family devotional guide that takes you as a family through each day this coming week starting today. And you have options in there of activities, parents, you could do or read together as a family. And then also the one that's called Love to the Uttermost. I read it this morning. I was looking at our, uh, the, the, the first devotional and uh, I just love the way uh, John Piper writes uh, at one point in this introduction to the week, Holy Week, he describes a verse in uh, chapter 20, uh, 12 of Luke, verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And he says this, he says, because every little piece of this verse is intended to help take away the fear that Jesus knows we struggle with. What is that fear? Namely, that God begrudges giving his benefits, that he is constrained and out of character when he does nice things, that at the bottom he is an angry God and loves to vent that anger. That verse is given to try and dispel that idea that we have that God is begrudging to bless his people. And the very idea of the, of the devotional love to the uttermost is saying, no, no, get it out of your heart. God loves you. God is a loving God, and he loves to pour out blessing to all of us.
And uh, so let me lead us in prayer just before we turn to the Word of God. Father, we thank you for this, this morning. I thank you for Matt and Mercedes and their children that read the Scripture to us. I thank you, God, for this week that lay before us, this incredible week that we're given step by step how Jesus lived this last week of his life on earth. We pray you'll help us as we honor you, Lord, and, and think about your last week and walk with you through those streets of Jerusalem and into the temple courts and out to Bethany and all the places you visited and all the people that you talked to. And Lord, we just ask you to bless us as we get ready for Good Friday and Easter Sunday. We thank you for this incredible center of the week and uh, of the Holy Week, Lord. And we pray your blessing upon this morning as we unpack more of what that week meant in theological, biblical terms. Help us to understand, oh Lord Jesus, what you accomplished at the cross. So open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, and we'll wait upon you now, Holy Spirit, to teach us. In your name, amen. Well, Yad Vashem, maybe some of you have been to Jerusalem. I have not, and I'd love to go one day. But in West Jerusalem, there is a place called the World Holocaust Remembrance Center, Yad Vashem. And in it, there are uh, museums, there's hundreds of pictures on a whole silo of people who have died in the death camps in the Second World War. And if you walk around the buildings, you will find that there is a garden there with many trees, and it's called the Garden of the Righteous. And there's an avenue that borders it called the Avenue of the Righteous. And the purpose of that garden is to honor all of those who were non-Jews who risked their lives to pro protect and save the lives of Jewish people from extermination during the Second World War. And a tree is planted in honor of many of them, maybe all of them, I don't know. And one of those trees that is planted in the Garden of the Righteous is a tree that is planted for Oscar Schindler. Now, many of you will hear that name and immediately think of the 1994 movie called Schindler's List, a story about this man, Oscar, literally a man who was an industrialist in the Second World War. He was a member of the Nazi party. And through his efforts, he saved about 1,100 Jews from being sent to Auschwitz because he employed them in his factories in Poland. And uh, it's a gripping story, a good, well-done well movie, and uh, the, the life of this man uh, shows the, the total depravity of humanity indeed, but it also shows uh, severe suffering, and it shows the extreme love and courage that many people went through. And um, following the war, there was, of course, many trials of war criminals Nazi war criminals, and um, many of the Schindler Jews that worked in the factories spoke up and testified on his behalf. And so here at Yad Vashem, there was a tree planted in memory of Oscar Schindler. And um, here's, here's what I want to say about this. On the day that they planted the tree in memory of Oscar Schindler, he was declared righteous among the nations. Now, I know that being declared righteous meant for those who survived the war that they could testify in those trials that this man had done something of righteous deeds. He had done something to protect people. He had done something to stand in the way of the brutality, the racism, the anti-Semitism, and what he had done was what was sufficient to declare him righteous among the nations, have a tree planted there, and be remembered like we are today. But that is not the meaning of the word in the Bible, as we have been studying for the last several weeks. 
The word justify means to be declared righteous. And in the Bible, it is not something that someone does in order to be declared righteous. It is something that someone receives by faith completely in what Jesus Christ has already done on the cross. And so, in our study of Romans, we have been realizing that, that uh, this is a big word, justify. And it means to be declared righteous before God. But it is not based on what we do. It is not, it, it, what we have been studying has shown us that all the amount of good works, all the, the religious good or the non-religious good, None of it is going to equal us being declared righteous. It's only by faith. And so it says in the scriptures that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so when did that happen? Well, it happened 2,000 years before Christ. It happened 430 years before God gave the law to Moses. It happened 14 years before he was circumcised as a Jew. In other words, it happened... Well, he was a Gentile. It happened, well, he was a nobody. He was a Gentile man from the land of the Chaldeans. We have no idea why God chose Abraham. No understanding why he chose Abraham over many others who were, at the time, worshipers of many false gods. And so God is, or Paul, the apostle, is taking Abraham as this example to show that it doesn't matter who you are, how pagan or later on how righteous he lived in following God. It doesn't matter whether you are Jew or Gentile, religious or non-religious, Muslim or Hindu. Whatever you are, this Jesus, this justification that is by faith in what he did is for you to believe by faith. Now, I want to just uh, pause for a moment to tell you where we are in Paul's logic, in Paul's working out of his doctrine. We have been studying for the last several weeks about chapters 1 to 4, Paul building the case that everybody stands condemned before God, they're without excuse, that we need God to intervene and bring redemption because we can't do it ourselves. That is what the gospel teaches. In chapter 321, it says, but now a righteousness from God has been revealed. And that's what the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is all about. God did what none of us could do through Jesus. Starting the week after Easter, in two weeks from today, we will begin into chapter 5, verse 1, which says, Therefore, having been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so now, Paul is going to enter into the next sta stage of his description of the gospel, and now justification by faith is past tense. And now, having been justified, so we'll get on to a new season of Paul's explanation. And then chapters 9 to 11 we'll be going into later on where Paul talks about how Jew and Gentile unite to form the church of Jesus Christ. And then the last section, chapters 12 to 16, we'll be looking at what does it mean to live a transformed life. What Paul is doing is he's unpacking the entire description of God's good news through Jesus now, I want to do more than that, and if you'll pause and bear with me, I want to turn this into a classroom right now. We're going to do a little bit of a systematic theology class. And it was great to hear, it was so great to hear Azra and Janet this morning sharing about Far Corners Ministry because I had the privilege of going with a few others in our church family in 2014. And actually, what I'm going to share with you right now, just briefly, uh, is, is some of the teaching that I gave to the pastors when I had the opportunity to be there in 2014. And what I want to do is I'm going to share this with you so that you can see where Paul's teaching fits in to the overall Bible. Now, uh, the Bible teaches us, a biblical worldview teaches us about a creator God. And this, the Lord God created humans like you and I in his own image, male and female, he created us. But it also says, the record also shows that, that we fell into sin, that we disobeyed God. Our forebears, Adam and Eve, chose to not listen to God. And uh, they fell, as the, the Bible calls this, 
uh, or theologians call it original sin or the fall. And so there was a, a, a severing of our communion with God. It brought spiritual death. And um, when we begin our lives in physical birth, we, we start out and we inherit that nature from Adam and Eve that is predisposed to sin. And that's what Paul has been talking about in all of chapters 1 to 4, this, this essence of sin and accountability to God. While we're in this condition, we are actually called dead in sin. We're actually slaves to sin, and we're children of wrath. The Bible says that we're, we're under the wrath of God because God is holy and we are sinful. We're told in the Scriptures that in this condition, we're not able not to sin. We're not able not to sin. The Latins had a wonderful phrase for that. And so here is, this, here is this picture of despair. Here is this lostness, deadness spiritually that humanity is. And what is the solution? God is going to work a way, a road of reconciliation back to him. God is going to provide redemption. He is going to do what we could not do. And God does that through what we've been talking about, justification. It's being declared righteous, not because we have the good works in ourselves that we're so good, God's impressed with how good we are, no, but because by faith we trust in his righteousness of what Jesus did in his life and death and resurrection. And so this is the teaching of, of uh, Romans 1 to 4, essentially. And once we are justified, we are born of God. We're born spiritually. And uh, if you are converted, if you are turning to Christ by faith, if you are born spiritually, if you are justified, um, that, that beginning point where you turn from sin and accept and receive Jesus Christ, that becomes your new birth. And the new word that the theologians use to describe that is called sanctification. Now, justification is a one-time event where God declares you righteous because he, he's counted the sins on Jesus that were on you and the righteousness of Jesus on, on you that was on him. And that exchange takes place, and you are in a one-moment instance declared righteous. But sanctification is a lifelong process. The entire Christian life is sanctification, which means being made holy. That's what God is doing with you and with me, and there's a whole bunch of rough edges that he has to knock off with his hammer and chisel to make us to be like Jesus Christ. And so God is working on that. Now, in this condition, we are... We are on a journey with God, and we are adopted children. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're not children of wrath. And we are able to sin still, but we are able not to sin. By the presence and power of the Holy Spirit within us, we can have the, the ability to overcome sin. And uh, so that's the whole life of the Christian walk, sanctification, and then one day when you and I, as believers in Jesus, die, we will face physical death and we will face another big theological word, which is glorification. And glorification is this, again, one event in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, it'll happen, and we will receive our new glorified bodies on the day of resurrection not a mortal body that will sub subject to, to decay, but a, a new and glorified spiritual body. And we will be made, in an instance, we will be made like Jesus. We will be made perfect. And in that condition, we will be in God's presence, co-heirs with Christ. And can you imagine this? Can you imagine this? We will not be able to sin. <laughs> Hallelujah. That, that's the glorification that we await. That's glorified bodies. That's the glorified state. Sin will not have anything to do with our, our state in heaven eternally. Not the devil, not our own fleshly desires, not the worldly influences on the outside. None of that will have anything to do with what God has planned for those who love him. And so here we have this incredible 
um, description that Paul is working through one step at a time in, in Romans. Chapter 8, verses 18 to the end of the chapter, he's talking about glori- being glorified. You know? Now, what is the relationship with sin in each of these states of justification, sanctification, glorification. Now, why do we make such a big deal of sin? Christians might be asked that every once in a while. Have you ever been asked that? Why do Christians make such a big deal of sin? You see, if you don't get sin right, you won't get justification right, and you won't get any of it right, because we need to understand our state before God. So, in our condition of justification... We are freed from the penalty of sin. When we are declared righteous in Jesus Christ by faith in him, now the penalty of sin is no longer on us. We we are given eternal life, given forgiveness. And that is, for the Christian, salvation past. We can say, as the Bible does, we can say, I was saved. When were you saved? I was saved. Some people remember the date, some people don't. J.I. Packer said it's more important that you know you are saved than that you can remember the day that you were saved. But there's another way that we think of sin. Sanctification is freedom from the power of sin. Now that's a process. That's your lifelong process. Increasingly, God is, is wrenching the power of sin away from you. He's destroying that. He's liberating you, and slowly you are being saved, present tense. I was saved, that's justification. I am being saved, that's sanctification. And one day I will be saved, and I will be freed from the very presence of sin. <laughs> it won't even have access to me. It can't get at me. It can't come some, some from within. can't come from the down. can't come from below. can't come from the world. It, it just can't. It's not going to be affecting me anymore. I was saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. I was freed from the penalty of sin. I am being freed, freed from the power of sin. And one day I will be freed from the presence of sin. Well, I don't know if that's helpful to you or not, but sometimes it's good. Have you ever been on a trip and you've got this really confusing road map and then you just put it aside and take out a real simple one? <laughs> I said, okay, now I know where I'm. Now I got my bearings. Well, that's what I wanted to do here. I wanted to just show you this is where Paul is. This is what Paul's talking about. And when we come back here after Easter and get into chapter 5, verse 1, we're getting into sanctification. We're getting into how does the Christian live out the Christian life. I hope you are going to be joining us in that study. Well, today I have decided to call my sermon Solid Faith in the Solid Promises of a Solid God. Why did I use the word solid? It's not in the text. <laughs> well, I just like it, okay? It just, it just kind of comes out the essence of the text is this solid faith in the solid promises of a solid God. And we're going to unpack it in reverse because if you don't have a solid God, what are promises and what is faith in the God if it's not a solid God? So we're going to start with God, we're going to go to the promises, and then we're going to go to the faith. By the way, I was just reading, and I don't have anybody extremely British here that I can see anyway. I've heard that in, in England, I'm not sure if it's now or, or in the past, but if someone came up to you and said, hey mate, do me a solid, would you? That means do me a favor. And the idea of do me a solid is that you're not going to back down. You're not going to not show up. Now moving tomorrow morning, you're going to bring your truck and you're going to help me. Do me a solid. And if you say, yes, I'm going to do you a solid, that means you are going to show up, right? So I like the word solid, and that's the way I'd like to describe God. Paul uses, I'm going to share three things that Paul says about God in this text from chapter 4 and uh, the passage that Matt and Mercedes uh, were read to us. So first of all, the three things... Number one, he calls into existence things that do not exist. We get exactly, uh, obviously, we get a, a picture of creation. How did God create the world? He, he said, let there be light. He said it, and it came into existence. So he's, he's saying here, Paul is saying that God is the kind of God who brings 
things into existence that didn't exist. That's the kind of God Abraham believed in. Now, Abraham is the context of chapter 4, verse 19. He's 100 years old. He's as good as dead when it comes to bearing or being able to produce children. His wife also is that way, as good as dead. Her womb is barren. But God, in Abraham's mind, was the God who calls into existence things that don't exist. So it didn't matter that he was barren or his wife was. You know, in the Guinness World Book of Records, they said that the oldest mother on record to give birth is a woman that was 66 years old from Spain in 1940. They obviously did not read the Bible because Sarah was 90 years old and she gave birth to Isaac. So it tells me that the people that put out the Guinness World Book of Records do not believe in Scripture because that's also a record of history and accurate. And so, how is it that this took place, this Isaac being born at the age of 100 for Abraham, 90 for Sarah? Well, it's because Abraham's God is the God that calls into existence things that don't exist. Plain and simple. Verse 21, that God is able to do what he promised. If God said it, he will fulfill it. And if it's not fulfilled, maybe you're confused about what God said. There are people that I've spoken with that have said that, that uh, they've claimed a promise from God and they've, they've thought that God is meant to, to heal them or a loved one. And the loved one dies. And they're confused about God now. But friends, God did not say he would heal every disease. And sometimes I think I hear people say, they quote Psalm 103, verse 3. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord and forget not all his benefits who heals all your diseases and forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. And, and what is he talking about? Well, I t- Bless the Lord, O my soul. Well, God does promise to heal all your soul's diseases. And again, are we misunderstanding some of the promises of God? So, God promises something. He's able to deliver on the promises because God is a solid God. So many promises. Think of the one, Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold you by my righteous right hand. Matthew 28.20. I am with you always to the very end of the age. I am with you always to the very end. That's an unconditional promise. I'm with you. He's, he's Emmanuel. He's God with us. I love Psalm 91, verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Now, that's a conditional promise. That's not an unconditional one. That's a conditional promise. He who dwells will rest. You don't want to dwell? You can't rest. <laughs> if you're not going to find rest, it's because you're not dwelling in the shadow in the shelter of the Most High. There are conditional promises and there are unconditional promises. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy my burden is light, and you shall find rest for your souls. The third characteristic that comes out of this text is that this God is the God who raised Jesus from the dead. Verses 24 and 25 talk about how God raised Christ and he was raised for our justification. There's that word again. Now I want you to know that the the, the chapters and verses of your Bible are put there several years after the Bible was written. But I want you to know that chapter 4 ends, Paul is writing and he just carries on into chapter 5. The last thought The last thought of chapter 4 is the literally last two Greek words of chapter 4 is our justification. And the very first words in the next breath, as Paul is dictating to his scribe, the very next breath in the Greek text says this, having been justified. Now he just 
Having been justified, therefore, by faith, peace we have with God. That's the way the Greek text says it. And so now it's past tense, and Paul is, is now into a new section. He's talking about this is the way communion with God looks. You now can stand in grace, and you've accessed that place of standing in grace by faith. And now, here's what the Christian life looks like. He's going to talk about that. I read, uh, heard, heard uh, Sinclair Ferguson once preaching, and he tells how executions used to take place in Scotland. And uh, many years ago, he said, <clears throat> once the execution was complete, there was a notice posted on the prison door of the inmate's cell that was executed. And it read something like this. It said this. At 8 a.m., Angus MacDonald was justified. That's what it said. At 8 a.m., Angus MacDonald was justified. What does it mean? It means that he was declared righteous. It means that he had paid his debt to the society. He had, he, it means that the law no longer had anything against him. He had satisfied the just demands of the law. Through his death. It could have been put on the, on the tomb of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has satisfied the law's demand, is justified. And we could say today, and everyone in Jesus Christ, everyone who's put their faith in him, are also justified. The law no longer holds anything against you. Nothing can come against you because you have been declared righteous. In the righteousness of righteousness, Jesus' righteousness. And so, that's what Easter's all about, folks. <laughs> that's why we're going to gather Good Friday and then Easter Sunday, because, because we have a, have a justification that is solid. Solid promises now. Let's go on. I mention Abraham, as Paul does, because... He did not have the law of God. He did not have status. He was raised in a pagan home. He, he worshiped false gods. When God found him, there's nothing in Abraham that made God say, well, I'm impressed with him. I think I'll, I'll take him onto my team. We know, no, have no idea why God chose Abraham. But God laid his love on Abraham. He called Abraham. Abraham listened to God. He obeyed. He went. He left the land of Ur, the Chaldeans. His father was an idolater. Many people, in, they, they discover that the community around there was about 300,000 in this vast area and that they were especially idolaters of the moon, Nana, the moon god. And Abraham got up and left. And he, he, God said, go to the land that I will show you. And he got up and he left and he went to the land that God showed him. In Genesis 15, he's on this journey, this trek, following God. And in Genesis 15, one night, God appears to him in a vision. And uh, Abraham's saying, well, who is this heir that you're saying you're going to build me into a nation? And the only person that Abraham could think of, chapter 15 of Genesis, is Eleazar of Damascus. We think that maybe he was a slave of Abraham or a distant relative. And God says, no, no, come on out of your tent. <laughs> and I can just picture it. Abraham goes out of his tent and he looks up into the night sky and God says, can you, can you look, look at the heavens? Can you count the stars? Abraham is starstruck. And uh, then God says, so shall your offspring be. From your own body with Sarah, so shall it be. <laughs> And so God promised Abraham that he would make him into a great nation. And he simply trusted. It says in that very same text, verse 6, and Abraham believed God. Now what did he do? Did we see something? If I would have been standing there, would, have, would we have seen Abraham say, hey God, I believe you. No, we don't know anything. He did anything. He just believed God. And it was credited to his righteousness. And then resting on the grace of God, verse 16. That's why it depends on faith in order that, it might, that the promise may rest on grace 
and be guaranteed to all his offspring. We can be so thankful that the fulfillment of this promise is an unconditional promise of God. The promise does not rest on our faith. It rests on God's grace because God's grace alone can guarantee it. There's a danger, I think, in seeing faith as a condition to merit grace. This is slippery language here. Grace is unmerited favor from God. But sometimes I hear Christians talk about their faith as though somehow they're contributing to their salvation. If you are drowning and you are as good as dead, just like Abraham was described as, you would not claim any credit for your rescue when someone throws you a rope. And neither should we when we're snatched from spiritual death and darkness and given new life in Christ. It's guaranteed to all who are Abraham's offspring. Let's move on to talk about what solid faith looks like. Abraham is the illustration. He's called the father of the faithful. And faith is, is, is uh, seen by Abraham in verse 18 as in hope against all hope. In hope against hope. It's sort of like Paul is describing here that all the odds were against Abraham. He was 100 years old. Uh, he was in a foreign land. And, and hope against hope, humanly speaking. It says the scriptures that, verse 20, that no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise, but he grew stronger in his faith and he gave glory to God. This word waver means to be judging back and forth. It's like you're deciding between two things and you can't decide, so you're going back and forth. He didn't waver like that. And it says in the scriptures that he, he grew strong. It means to be empowered. It's the word dynamite comes from that word. And then it's, it says, finally, that faith that Abraham demonstrates is counted or was counted to him as righteousness. And similarly, Paul is saying, that's the way you will become righteous. You just put your faith in Jesus and what he did, and you can be counted righteous as well. He hoped against all hope. He was as good as dead, but he believed in the God who could raise the dead, who could call into existence that which did not exist. He did not waver through unbelief. He grew stronger. He gave more glory to God. I know, I know there's that chapter 16 of Genesis where where he had, he had a little moment of not believing God. He slept with his maidservant, his, Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. He had Ishmael. And, and so we know he's not perfect, but he believed God. The very next chapter, we hear about Isaac again. So what is it that we learn from Abraham? We learn that only God can be our security. It's, it's our, our, our salvation rests on his grace, and he guarantees it through his son. And that's why I'm glad it doesn't depend on, my eternal security does not depend on my faith, my performance, my ability. It depends on the faithfulness of the son of God. What the world is waiting to see is not a strong people that are strong in faith and strong to take exploits and so on. What they're waiting for is to see a weak people emboldened and empowered by God so that the glory goes to God and not the people of God. And so, verse 24, we, we're reminded that this was written for our sake. It's kind of like the way Paul almost ends this whole epistle in Romans 15, verse 4, he says, for everything written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. The intent of scripture, the intent of this passage that we've read this morning is that we would believe by faith that Jesus died for our sins, that he was raised for our justification, that we can have peace with God, that we can be declared righteous. That we don't need to live in fear of God, in fear of our own screw-ups and sins. So I want to ask you this morning, do you have solid faith in the solid promises of a solid God?
Is that your faith? Jesus said in John 6, 35, he's, he's given us a promise here, and I know this is for us because he said, whoever, whoever. He said, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not go hungry, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. The spiritual bread and drink for your soul, for your spiritual life, for your eternal life, is Jesus himself. Believe in him. Be declared righteous in him. Cling to him. Two verses later, he says, because, again, that word, whoever, because whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Isn't that great news? I will never cast out. Let's pray. What a gracious and loving God you are. Oh, Father, I can get up into this pulpit and I can talk about this incredible theology, these incredible truths, and I can, and I can explain them. But, Lord, I need your grace to walk them out, to live in that grace in which I now stand. And all of us, Lord, need you to make real the things of the promises of God through Jesus Christ so that that we, having been declared righteous, will stand in that grace and live in that grace from day to day. And that every morning we would be thankful for that grace that receives our faith. And, And we don't have to do anything except respond with that love of what you've done for us. So help us, God. Make real these truths. And as we walk with Paul further into Romans, may we learn to walk in the newness of life that you have called us into. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done for us. Thank you for the gift of faith, and we thank you for the grace that you have poured upon those who have come to you, the grace that justifies us, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit that sanctifies us and grows us that we might reflect you better, and we thank you for the glorification that we can look forward to. We thank you for the, for the truth of being able to stand in your presence and see you with our eyes. We thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you would continue to gift us uh, with unwavering belief as we, as we walk and press on toward the prize of the high calling of what you have called us to. And I pray, Lord, that you would expand your kingdom because you are the King of kings, you are the Lord of lords, and all of this is for you. So we just ask that you would have your way in us and through us, and may many, many more come to know Jesus Christ as the one who has justified them. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a wonderful day.